there's a practice called neti neti in Sanskrit, which means not this, not this, not this. So it's questioning who you think you are, who you thought you were, and continuously going deeper. It can be a lifetime practice because I see that we all get identified with various things at various times. Like, you know, I'm a musician or I'm an artist. Well, that's true. But underneath that, there's there's a deeper truth and a deeper connection to the essence of you. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. In the episode that opened this season a few weeks ago, I told you I was going to come out of the spiritual closet and pull back the curtain on some previously hidden interests of mine. And today, I am not hedging my bets on that promise. We're going to talk about, and hopefully add some crucial perspective around, two topics that have been incredibly popular in the media of late, psychoactive plant medicines and their relationship to self-transformation. A little over five years ago, I went to the desert in the Southwest to visit a woman and go on my first journey with the aid of ayahuasca, a plant medicine made from a vine indigenous to South America. Four years later, I returned to visit with this woman again and go on a second guided journey with the help of the medicine. Both experiences were utterly transformative, but not perhaps in quite the way you would think. Today, I'm joined by that woman, an incredible human and a wonderful friend who has been instrumental in my personal development and in helping me let go of anxious thoughts, come back into my body, and find my voice. She has guided thousands of people on healing journeys with the aid of the ayahuasca plant over many, many years. I'll refer to her only as Elle because, despite the rapidly growing popularity of ayahuasca ceremonies, they are still technically illegal to conduct. For those of you who are longtime listeners, Elle is also the person who first asked me the question, who are you without the doing? A question that was so pivotal to my self-inquiry that I wrote an entire podcast episode about it, which I published just about a year ago in season two. If you'd like to listen to it, and honestly, it's one of my favorite episodes I've ever done, there's a link in the show notes. Today, in conversation with Elle, we'll be going into a deeper exploration of that question, who are you without the doing, and how you might go about answering it for yourself. We'll also be talking about how to shift from a fear-based way of operating to a joy or presence-based way of operating, why coming back into the body soothes anxious thoughts, and why self-love is one of the foundations of transformation. And let me add one quick caveat for skeptical listeners. You do not need to be interested in ever taking psychedelics or any kind of plant medicine or drug to take a lot away from this conversation. Ultimately, it's about healing, self-transformation, and learning to operate from a more conscious, expanded awareness. I'm so excited to share Elle's work with you. Let's dive in. I want to start by talking about your practice. You have lived many lives, which we'll get to a little bit later in the show, but at the moment, you facilitate healing work 
for people. And frequently that involves guiding people on journeys with the assistance of the ayahuasca plant, typically in a one-on-one setting. And you've been doing this work for many, many years now and treated probably thousands of people. And I'm curious if you see any commonality in what people are seeking when they show up on your doorstep. That's a great question. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, people obviously want to go deeper into their spiritual practice, but what seems to motivate most humans is some level of suffering, even if it's mild suffering, even if it's anxiety or feeling that you should be somewhere other than where you are in life or any of the things that sort of keep or in the way of freedom. I, I find that most people, because we always work with intention, their, their intention is to have a deeper connection to themselves or be able to let go of anxiety or be able to heal relationships with their families. So, I mean, I think all work that is healing has to do with being more free, being more connected, ending your own suffering in some way. And the the good part is that a lot of people are just wanting to, knowing there's more to life than just working, making money, having a family, that it is about their spiritual path. But I'd I'd say mostly people seem to be motivated by, by some level of pain and not feeling free. And so in some way they want to be relieved of that suffering or to transform themselves in some way, would you say? Yeah, I I think there's some kind of healing or knowing that there's more or knowing that they're not as open and relaxed. Relax is a big word that most people just really aren't relaxed in their lives. So I think the opportunity of doing any kind of a deep dive is to be able to be more present, more open, more relaxed, more at peace. Yes. Well, and when I came to you, I would say for the first time, I was deeply not relaxed. And I think you instantly (laughs) perceived that. (laughs) I would say you're definitely not alone. (laughs) You know, and and maybe that is the, the prime motivator is that, you know, people start to get a sense that, you know, no matter what they're doing or what they have in their lives, they're, they're not truly relaxed and at peace with who they are, how the world is, you know, everything in their life in some way. I want to talk a little bit more about ushering in uh, this relief or this transformation or this healing. And I knew that after the first time that I visited you, that I would come again. But I also felt like at the time that I didn't want to be sort of greedy for transformation or healing and that I had to honor the process And I didn't end up coming back to see you for about four years. And I think these plant ceremonies really have gotten kind of a reputation of sparking these sort of grand transformative insights, which I think can give folks the impression that there's sort of a shortcut to self-knowledge or to change or to freedom, as you say. But I don't think it works quite that way. What's, What's your perspective? I believe that there there are many ways to expand consciousness, plants just being one of them. But it 
any of these kind of things, whether it's breath work or yoga or, you know, any of the kind of things that can alter, expand consciousness, only open a door. And then I think it's like what you did. And I really admire that, you know, you took what occurred in the journey and really worked on integrating it into your life and really into your practices. And I think that that's one of the problems I see with thinking that this is just an instant cure-all or that you need to keep doing journey after journey after journey. And it's almost like there's such a beautiful gift, but to take responsibility for what's opened up and continue to find your own practices, not depending on the plant or anything outside of yourself to kind of keep that going, but to really integrate what's opened up in your life by finding practices, reading people that really support that. So it's, it's like right now it's kind of touted as a cure-all or, you know, it'll fix everything. And there there is some truth to that, or I wouldn't be working with it because it was very much that for me. But then the most important part is how that integrates. Because a lot of things that happen in altered states are just these very high kind of epic experiences, but may not be able to translate into your moment-to-moment daily life. So I think the integration and the work and the practices that can be developed, like you took four years of seriously working with what opened up for you in the journey. You know, and to me, that that's really... It was very rewarding to see that. And I don't mean that most people don't do that, but that's the important part, I think, is how you integrate that and bring it into your life in a way that it's a place to live from, not just an experience that you had. To offer a little clarity around what you just mentioned about my journey and what happened for listeners was one of the things that happened when I went on the first journey was that the outcome was that I had no anxiety for about three weeks, which was absolutely incredible to me. And I was kind of walking around like, do other people live like this? Like, this is amazing. And After about three weeks, it came back. But what was so interesting about the impact was that it allowed me to see that this anxiety wasn't part of my identity or part of my personality, which I really thought that it had been. And so it came back, but it was clear to me that it could be removed, that it was a layer that I was adding or that things that I was doing were adding, and that it wasn't sort of part and parcel of who I was. So that's just kind of a little more context on that. Um... And I think context is an interesting word to use here, um, because as you said, there there is something very powerful and very epic about these experiences. And to me, what it is, is not so much that some transformation necessarily happens during the event itself, but that it really allows you to kind of zoom out and get this kind of 30,000 foot view that's really difficult to have in day-to-day life. And then just having that view and having that perspective or that context is then what maybe allows people to move forward in a different way. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I think all spiritual work, and this is truly spiritual work, and that's my focus, is about really knowing who you are. 
And in a sense, you know, if you identify with anxiety and fears and stories, you really believe that's who you are. And I think deconstructing the the smaller identity and having some distance so that you can witness that, you know, fear and anxiety are just things that arise and they're not who you are. You're, you're, you're witnessing it instead of just being that or thinking that's who you are. And so you start to identify more with the deeper truth that is who's witnessing or what is witnessing than just being those emotions or being those fears or being the old patterns. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get into that a little bit more in a minute, actually. Um, But before we get there, I wanted to ask you, um, I've been using the word transformation quite a bit already. And I feel like that's something that in the sort of zeitgeist, we'll say, or the kind of public record is really uh, increasing the frequency with, with which people are talking about transformation. What, how would you define transformation? Or how do you think it unfolds? Well, I, I think everyone is in an evolution in their lives. Some people are really working at it and possibly going much quicker. Sometimes just grace happens. But it, it's really, I think, transforming from living from kind of a fear-based connection to a smaller identity to starting to bring to consciousness the patterns that have created that or have kept you from being less than yourself, being less than your true nature, being less than open and loving, being less than relaxed. So I think, you know, that any kind of a, a journey or a transformation is about ending suffering in some way or about going deeper into really knowing who you are, peeling away the layers of that which has created the suffering or that which keeps you locked into more of a life based on fear rather than openness and consciousness. You're reminding me, last night I was listening to a interview with a psychotherapist who's also a Buddhist practitioner by the name of Bruce Tift, I believe is his name. Um, and he was talking about these negative habits. Specifically, he was talking about neuroses. And he was positing that neuroses really require almost like a certain level of ritual to maintain them. And that when you're in that space, in that anxious neurotic space, you're sort of necessarily disembodied. And I'm curious if that resonates with you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think of embodiment as one of the reasons I do this work, that I've done it for myself because of that practice and that I see as probably one of the most important things I work with people on. And it's, it's, the difference between living in your head and your thoughts and the smaller identity, which is kind of where neuroses live in a sense, and shifting into some deeper connection with yourself where you're really relaxed in your own body. You're shifting from head or being able to calm down the nervous system enough to relax into the body to where you're not just in the old patterns of anxiety or fear that are sort of a a cellular imprint 
but it's possible to relax deeper than that into a fully embodied connection with yourself. And do you think that this disembodiment has any kind of connection to our fairly deep engagement with technology on a almost, we'll say, minute to minute or second to second level these days? Or do you think it has to do with anything else? Or is this just kind of, you know, something that happens to humans? (laughs) Yeah, all of those things. But when I look at people of my generation or even older that did not grow up with technology, I think the disconnect happens almost from the time you come onto this earth plane. You're, you're born into a family that has inherited a certain imprint from their lineage. And some degree of, I think everyone has some degree of trauma. And I think, in a sense, when this little open soul comes into your family of origin, that things can happen, particularly if you have, you know, erratic energy around you or if someone drinks or if there's a lot of unconsciousness or just parents not able to be present. And I I always talk about how it's never about making your parents wrong, but it's seeing what you're left with. And a lot of times, you know, it's just too painful to be in the body. You, You have to be always checking outside of yourself to survive. You know, even even if it's not, you know, horrible, abusive things, it can feel things can feel very threatening to an infant or to a child, or just not feeling that someone's there. So I think the disconnect can happen very early on. You know, if if you're not lucky enough to have parents that were just always there and holding and supportive, and and then even if you had that, you know, there can be just one instance that happens that as you disconnect in some way. But I absolutely believe that, you know, that disconnect is so deepened by the lack of connection to the body and just always on a device of some sort and disconnect from nature. But primarily it's a disconnect from the physical body. And just disconnecting maybe from negative experiences that are happening around you. Oh, I think it doesn't even, at the, you know, at some point it doesn't even have to be negative. I think most people just kind of live very separated from the body the emotions, the feelings, it's much easier to be in your head and, you know, be focused on a little screen and not do the inward focus of, you know, what am I feeling? What's really going on here? And, you know, I I see that when I work with people of all ages, that for most people, the focus has always been external. You know, what do they want from me? How do I look? What, what, what do I need to do to feel accepted here? And, you know, it's when you start doing this journey that you start to really tune into yourself and go, okay, what feels right to me? And so it's kind of a shift in perception inside your own being, where it becomes about you, where it becomes about self-love rather than survival as it is in many families. And a lot of times it's a pattern that's been passed on for generations and generations. So, you know, no matter how loving your parents are, they're probably still passing on their inheritance in some way. Well, certainly um, coming back into the body was a huge part of the work that I did with you. And this is kind of a good 
lead into something else that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so when people come to you, you don't just kind of dive right into the journey with the plant medicine. You do some preliminary work with them to assess where they're at and, you know, kind of see what you're working with. And when I came to you, you asked me this really powerful question, which was, who are you without the doing? And I found this question so compelling that I wrote an entire podcast episode about it, which was called, Who Are You Without the Doing? that I published in season two of Hurry Slowly. And in that episode, I talk about how the first time you asked me that, I just had absolutely no idea what to say. Um, you know, having even any type of answer just felt like utterly incomprehensible. But when I visited you four years later to go on a second journey, you asked me that same question again, and we were actually able to work our way to an answer, which felt kind of amazing. And then one thing that's interesting is that that single podcast episode about your question probably got more unsolicited emails than any other episode that I've ever published. And for the most part, people were kind of freaked out by it. They were thinking about that question and you know, not having an answer made them really uncomfortable. So could you talk about why you ask that question? I'm assuming you don't, you know, you didn't only ask me that question and, and why you think people might find it so unsettling? Yeah, that, that's another interesting thing. Um, there's a lot of Eastern philosophy that's based on self-inquiry and the self-inquiry is basically, who am I? Because I think most spiritual work is, is about looking at what you're identified with that keeps you from having a deeper connection with a deeper truth of who you are. You know, and there's a, a, a practice called neti neti in Sanskrit, which means not this, not this, not this. So it, it's questioning who you think you are, who you thought you were, and continuously going deeper. It can be a lifetime practice because I see that we all get identified with various things at various times. Like, you know, I'm a musician or I'm an artist or I'm, well, that's true, but you're more than that. So it's like, not that, not that. And you're peeling the onion. And it's like most people identify with what they do or what their job is, or, you know, I'm a woman or I'm a very attractive woman. Or I'm a, you know, a a man looking for a mate, or I'm a husband, or I'm a wife, or I'm a father. And all that's true, but it's not an ultimate truth. You know, and wherever you stop kind of on the inquiry of who am I, or what's underneath it all, what's underneath the smaller identity or the ego, I mean, because you're basically describing a, an identity based on what you've done, or stories about why you are the way you are. But underneath that, there's there's a deeper truth and a deeper connection to the essence of you or the source of you or just the source. So, I mean, my life has been about kind of deconstructing various identities that I was very involved with, you know, and people really get involved even with being a spiritual teacher. You know, if you say, who are you? It's like, well, that's nice, but, you know, who are you underneath that? Or who are you if you couldn't be a spiritual teacher? Or in your case, I mean, because you had so many things you do and still do, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's amazing as long as you're not caught up in identifying with any particular thing. 
you know, that's why people are so devastated sometimes when their plans or the, the book that they're writing didn't get the received the way they wanted it to, because they're identified with being an author or being um, a successful author or a successful anything. I mean, who are you under the, underneath that if you're already a successful human being without identifying with all the various things that you do? Right. As my therapist used to ask me, what if there is no problem? I, I love that. that I, <laughs> I really believe that. It's like we can make such amazing stories about, you know, not being where we need to be or not being who we need to be or not being good enough. Good enough is a pretty universal one that I think comes from the early childhood stuff. You know, we didn't make this stuff up. You know, no one wants to go through life thinking they're not enough. Somewhere along the line, that's kind of an inherited thing. So, yeah, what if, what if there was no problem? What if you're already a totally all right human being? Well, in the way you were describing that evolution you know, was making me think I kind of made a shift for myself internally recently about, I don't know, I guess the way that I think about moving forward and my identity in the world. And I think more, I think I used to think about it as sort of defining myself, right? So this idea that I was kind of moving forward and carving out some sort of identity, but now rather than defining, I think of it as refining. So, you know, it's more like, carving away these layers, you know, as you are just sort of being present rather than like moving forward and like carving out this specific identity. I had a teacher, probably my first spiritual teacher, who was this amazing Aikido master, just master of energy. And I had physical problems, so I could never really do Aikido. But one of the things he worked with people on was kind of bringing the concepts of Aikido into your daily life. And so, you know, we did energy work, but I remember I was very identified with being a musician back then. I mean, my whole identity was about being a musician. You know, I was convinced it was my path in life. I was pretty young. I was in my 20s and that I was born to do this. And I remember sitting with him one time because he would, you know, kind of talk to us. And, and I was kind of fishing for, you know, I wanted him to agree with that in some way. And I remember saying something about, well, what about my music? And, you know, I could, even back then, I could tell he knew exactly where I was coming from. And I remember he just laughed and he said, it doesn't matter what you do. And, you know, this was like 45 years ago. And it took a while. I was pretty crushed because I really wanted him to say, oh yeah, you're born to do this. You, you know, you're going to be the greatest woman sax player who ever lived. You know, this is your calling. You know, and he basically laughed. And I, I didn't get it, or I've been gradually, you know, getting it more and more. And now I truly, truly believe that, that it doesn't matter what you do. You know, it's who's doing it. How much love are you bringing or consciousness are you bringing to everything you do or anything you do? We have to take a quick pause now, but stay with me. After the break, Elle and I will talk about some practical ways you can think about who you are without the doing and how coming back into the body can help activate your intuition. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Here's a fun fact. I originally wanted to call this podcast Whistling in the Dark. 
Personally, I still think it's kind of a cool name, but my guess is that it would have been significantly less successful than Hurry Slowly. For better or worse, a great idea is only as good as its first impression, which is why every idea deserves a great domain name. And Hover makes the process of finding that domain name completely seamless. They have a dizzying array of extensions to choose from, including all the classics like your .coms and your .orgs, plus a bunch of new school favorites like .me, .io, and my personal favorite for graphically-minded businesses, dot design. Plus, and this is the best part, Hover doesn't constantly try to upsell you. Whois privacy is included with every domain, and features like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. And if you have a bunch of websites like me, the more domains you register with Hover, the less you pay in renewals. If you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by Harvest. In an era when everything is constantly speeding up, time is our most precious resource. And unfortunately, it can't be stockpiled but it can be managed more wisely. Harvest is a simple and intuitive time tracking tool that gives you the data and the wisdom you need to manage your days more effectively. If you're working in a team environment, Harvest can help you stay accountable to your biggest priorities. You can see if the projects that are taking up the most time are aligned with your values. And you can also see where time is being wasted and what's standing in the way of progress. If you're working on your own, Harvest can help you hold yourself accountable to your personal goals by spotlighting areas where you may be spending time on tasks that are out of alignment with what you want to accomplish. What's more, Harvest provides you with a personal time report each week that helps you see how the reality of your workflow may have diverged from your expectations. And once you know where you're veering off course, you'll be well equipped to recalibrate your approach and use your time more wisely in the future. To make the most of your time, visit getharvest.com slash hurry slowly to start a free trial today and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly for 50% off. One thing that I didn't give listeners in that podcast episode that I mentioned, which I regret, was any guidance on how to go about starting to answer that question. But when you and I spoke, you did give me some kind of ideas on how to access that space on sort of moving from what Tara Brock calls human doing to human being. So how do you think people can start to explore who they are without the doing or just like thinking about that to get to sort of that little kernel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to look at sort of the deeper qualities of you when, when you're sitting in silence, when you're really feeling your heart, when you're really feeling how you connect to people, when you feel really open and free, that that's a, a deeper connection than just, you know, I do this or I do that. I mean, I was recently at this gathering of people and it was it was great. It was a consciousness thing. But I realized I wasn't that interested in what people do. And I think 
you know, it, it's, it's more that you can feel who someone is, you know, and then when they start talking about what they do, it's, it's, it's almost like for me, a distraction from getting, wow, this is a really loving person or this person really, you know, has a lot of fear. Or, you know, it, it, it's more that we each start to connect with a deeper truth of, you know, what, what you're bringing if you're just sitting in silence, you know, and yeah, I mean, there are times during the day, it depends on when you catch me, where I'm not bringing love and openness, but that's always available to connect to something deeper than just, well, I facilitate journeys or I'm a musician or I'm an author, I'm an artist underneath that. If you couldn't do any of that, what, what is the energy and the consciousness that you bring to every single interaction, whether it's with people or in nature, cleaning your house, who's doing it or, or what is the energy that's present? Yeah, well, two of the things that you um, had said to me that I feel like helped me kind of think through that question of who I was without the doing were, one, thinking about what my energy was like as a child, you know, when I felt sort of very kind of pure and kind of, you know, of myself. And then also, you know, thinking about, well, you know, what if I was a bus driver? What if I was a waitress? What if I was a yoga teacher? What if I was a lawyer? Like, you know, that I could have any profession and in any of those professions, like what's the core energy that I might bring to the table that would be sort of particularly me? And I found that helpful for thinking about it. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful way to look at it. I mean, when I really started doing my deep dive in this, I kind of stepped off into the edge, off the edge of everything I had known and gave up, you know, all the things I used to do even to make a living. And just for the first time ever in my life, I, I trusted and I, I kind of put it out to the universe, just put me where I can be useful, you know, I'll be a, a waitress in a diner, you know, because at that point I, I really got that it doesn't matter. And, and let me add that I think when you actually do let go, then you, you really get to do what you've loved to do your whole life anyway. So I, I think that's a big step. And, you know, what if you were a bus driver? Could you be the most loving, open, compassionate bus driver where people just felt good getting on your bus? You know, we've met people like that. I, I've actually been on buses like that. You know, and it's kind of like, like, if you look at what people have said about you your whole life, like, you know, Jocelyn's a good listener, or, you know, you're very compassionate, or you're very loving to your friends, that that's kind of, you know, because we have a hard time in our smaller identities, looking at the good parts of us, you know, so it's almost like if you look at what have people said about you your whole life, you know, and I'm sure people have always said that you're incredibly loving and a good friend. and Yes? Well, I don't know, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> But they seem to stick around. They do. Well, that, that, that's what I would say about you. So, you know, when, when you came that first time and you were telling me all the things you did, I, I think I, I kind of remember going, well, that's nice, but those are all verbs. So, you know, what, what's underneath that? And, and it, you know, it definitely feels like you are more in touch with that now. I mean, if you know that you could be a bus driver and make a difference in people's lives, you know, that that's huge progress. Well, and I think you're so right about just being able to feel, you know, someone's energy 
right away. And um, I think about this a lot right now because I'm single and I would like to meet someone. And, um, you know, sometimes people suggest using dating apps and things like that. And I don't like them for that reason, because I feel like, you know, you can write something or you can see a photo, mostly even it's now just looking at photos, but it gives you no sense of the energy of a person. And I think that maybe is really, um, in some ways at the heart of kind of the technology piece that we were talking about and why that gives people so much anxiety and why it makes us so disembodied is that, you know, you're just not in 3d space kind of feeling the energy of someone, you know, so you can kind of understand what the intentions are, you know, behind the words, if maybe they're not speaking, you know, kind of an exact alignment with what they mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely not a techno person, but, you know, there are people who meet over the internet and get married. And I do work with people on the phone where I can feel the energy as much as if they were with me. But I think it's the practice of, you know, trusting your instincts, trusting, I mean, there's no right way to do anything. You know, I uh, dating apps for me are, you know, uh, beyond what I would ever think of as a fun thing to do, but for some people it is, you know, and, but I, I think the bottom line of all of it is a connection with yourself where you start to trust your own instincts about people, or you start to be able to feel, you know, even if someone's presenting a different facade that this is really a shut down, angry person, or you feel someone's open heart, you know, from across the room. And I think all those things are really available to us, but if you're you know, just kind of locked into a techno world, then that's not something you're working to develop. You know, you're not doing the inquiry of what am I feeling? And, you know, or like what, what, what's in the way of me really feeling connected and relaxed. And, you know, then you start to feel other people. Yeah. Well, and I think you make a good point. It's, it's like, we've kind of fallen out of this because we're sort of disassociated from our bodies so frequently, we've kind of fallen out of this habit of trusting them and trusting that sort of intuition that comes with it. And that's something that I've really felt as I've done some of this work with you and on myself and kind of coming back more into my body is that the, you know, intuition and instincts really kind of bubble back up with that. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a great byproduct. I mean, cause basically you know, you will have an intuition about something and then your mind will, you know, kind of think about how they look on paper or this is supposed to be a really nice person. And you tend to override what you actually felt in the initial moment, which is usually pretty accurate. And and people tend to tell you who they are. You know, I, I hear this a lot in relationships, you know, where he said he wasn't ready to commit. And, but, you know, the, we project, if you're not connected to yourself, then you kind of project what you would like this other person to be like or what you, how, how you're making them up to be rather than really being able to be present with what's being offered, who this person really is. And, you know, that comes from that connection with yourself where you start to trust your instincts, where you start to really tune into yourself and feel, you know, does this feel good? You kind of become like a friendly animal. You know, animals don't do a lot of thought process. They can instantly feel, whoa, I don't want to play with this one. This one's not a friendly dog. You know, and there, there's no judgments and no thoughts. It's like just, yeah, here's one that wants to play and this one doesn't. 
You started to talk a little bit about, you know, really identifying with your musician identity in the past. And I wanted to rewind a little bit into your personal story and how you came to be doing this mysterious work that you now do, um, because you've had many incarnations before you started doing this type of work, facilitating healing. Could you talk a little bit about your earlier life and kind of how you came to um, the plant and and ultimately this particular work of guiding people in journeys? Yeah, that's interesting too, because that goes back to my, you know, kind of suffering, I would say, is what, I mean, I've always been curious and I've always been on, I would call it a quest for deeper knowledge. Even when I was a little kid, I was reading spiritual books and, and, you know, I'm a child of the sixties. I took LSD, but my life from the time I was 13 was really about surfing. Just like later on, I identified with music. I, I was a surfer. That was my life. And everything I did was geared to that. When I traveled around the world, it was to serve. I, I was a competitive athlete. I was very identified with my body and being strong and healthy. And overnight, when I was, I think I was almost 20, I came down with a deteriorating joint condition where I was surfing in Mexico one day and driving back to the States, one of my knees swelled up and I couldn't walk. And, uh, you know, I went into the hospital, went through amazing amounts of tests and was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And there didn't seem to be anything they could do to slow it down. So I went from my whole life being about surfing to never being able to surf again. and. You know, at first I was in denial and I just kept asking, when can I surf? When am I going to be normal? And over kind of going over quite a few years, I did everything I could possibly do to heal myself holistically. I I kind of bailed out of Western medicine fairly early on in the process because I think what they did immediately was put me on steroids, which caused all kinds of other problems. And So, I mean, I I could still walk, but I couldn't surf, you know, and that had been my life. So it kind of plunged me into an exploration fueled, I'm sure, by fixing myself and um, being very unhappy with how things were that I might not have gone as deeply into if I hadn't had the body I have. So it's been from the time I was 20 an exploration of, you know, what is this body? And I got pretty early on that I'm not this body. Well, then, you know, who am I? If I'm not a surfer, who am I? So it's kind of disidentification. And there wasn't much of a container, you know, since I was 20. And I, I read a lot of books. I'd been to India. But it was that was really the beginning of a, a deeper exploration of everything in the sense of, you know, how to alleviate my own suffering, not, not necessarily physical suffering, but, you know, the, the mental, the anger and fear and the upset that, you know, what I was most identified with, what I most loved was something I could no longer do. And so then you went on from there to become a musician, correct? Yes. I, I started playing music when I was living, I was living on Kauai at the time all this happened. And 
you know, I realized, okay, surfing, not going to be a part of my life. What, what do I love at this moment more than anything? It was music. So I started playing music, playing in bands, and I ended up moving to LA. But during that time, my body was still deteriorating. So I had moved to LA like in my mid thirties. And by the time I had been there for a while playing professionally as a musician, my hip started wearing out. And by the time I was 40, I could no longer put any weight on it, which meant I couldn't be on stage. I couldn't be dancing around, standing up, playing saxophones. And, you know, I knew it was time I had to do something about it. And people started talking about, you know, you should get a hip replacement. And, you know, I was in my 40, maybe my very early 40s. And the last thing on earth I wanted was a hip replacement. You know, I was determined I was going to cure this holistically. And I had tried everything and nothing seemed to help. But I was still very resistant to Western medicine. And I knew I had to change my consciousness too because I was still angry and, you know, little, not, not as much a victim as I had been for the previous 20 years, but still in the why me kind of phase of when things happen. And that was about the time that, back, back then, no one had ever heard of ayahuasca. This was in the very early 90s. And I had a friend that was kind of going away on weekends and doing something that she wasn't talking about much. She was going with her husband and we'd come back. And and I'd see her just like this radiant, very different person from who I had thought she was, just more open, more loving, more relaxed. And and I said, what are you doing? Whatever it is, I don't want to do it. She said, well, it's called ayahuasca. And I said, what's that? And she said, oh, it's plant medicine. And I had done LSD in the 60s. I had, you know, been around kind of a drug culture in Hawaii of people who smoked a lot of pot. And at the time, I was sort of very anti-substance, anti-drug. And so I wasn't that interested. I said, oh, yeah, I'm not really interested in taking something. But I just continued to see her change. And, you know, it was kind of amazing to me because whatever it was she was doing, you know, I wanted to do that. So I finally said, okay, I I really want to try this. And I did my first journey and it was absolutely transformative in so many ways. One, One of the main things was that I had an experience of everything was God. You know, it's like Western medicine, uh, holistic medicine in in some way that there was one wasn't better than the other. And so I came out of that totally open to seeing what Western doctors could do for me. And I ended up having a hip replacement. It was like being reborn. And I knew I just wanted to continue this work. And I ended up dropping out of my life as a musician, um, giving up my rent control department on the beach and moving to uh, hot springs where I did nothing but this work, my own being with other people for three years. But again, motivated by wanting to alleviate my own suffering. And in many ways that did help you heal yourself physically now. 
you know, that that's another thing. I mean, has the disease gotten any better? You know, it's, it's a progressive disease. And I think everything I've done has contributed to healing. But the hip replacement, you know, absolutely changed my life and gave me back a life. So that was as healing as any of the, you know, meditations or holistic practices I've been doing the last 20 years. So it kind of, you know, broadened my way of looking at, you know, this is good. This isn't good. Nothing could ever be black and white in the way that it had been before I started doing this work. I mean, in in one of my early journeys, my father was a Holocaust survivor. And I remember in this early journey, I experienced myself as both sides of the Holocaust. You know, I was the victim and the perpetrator. And that's another hard concept for people to get that, you know, we're, we're everything. You don't get to just keep the good stuff. You're, it's, it's owning your shadow and not trying to get rid of or separate yourself from that which you have decided is not good. And yeah, I know that's a bigger conversation, but at the time it was very, very much shook me out of my thinking things were a certain way or things were much more black and white than they are. So you had this incarnation as a surfer, which you were really identified with. And then you had this incarnation as a musician, um, which you were really identified with. And now you have, you know, a new incarnation kind of doing this work. And, you know, based on previous conversations that we've had, I think it's probably fair to say that in your 20s and 30s, you would have never pictured yourself doing this work that you're doing now, that it's come as a bit of a surprise how does it feel to have landed somewhere so different from what you might have expected, say, when you were, you know, surfing when you were 19? Yeah, what a journey. I mean, I guess we can all say that about our lives, you know, what, what a journey. And I think one of the things in my evolution after I started working with plants was I, I totally had surrendered in ways I never had, you know, in, in the sense of I wasn't really... I had no, I I did this work purely for my own healing. I had no agenda of doing it for anyone else. And, you know, like I said, I thought I'd probably go back to being a musician or, you know, if I was strong enough, I'd be a waitress in a diner. But I had stopped being so identified with what it was that I was going to do. I just trusted that somehow I would be put where I could be useful. And I started getting invited to, speak and I had been doing some energy work at the hot springs and playing the sax because I really believe when the more you connect to your deeper truth of who you are the more everything you love gets to come into play so I started playing music again but not in the kind of playing in smoky bars and you know playing what people wanted to hear I I would just go out in nature and play very meditative stuff so I started doing meditation groups using music and people started showing up wanting to do energy work. And for a long time, I I needed my own integration of those three years at the hot springs. So I I definitely wasn't even open to open to working with people with plant medicine. I was still kind of in my own integration. But I started working with people doing energy work and just kind of sharing what I had learned that had 
me start to identify with a deeper truth of who I was and to let go of suffering in all forms, whether it was the story about my physical pain. There's a, there's a big difference between just pain and the suffering that comes from having a story that I shouldn't have this pain. You know, it's not fair. Why me? Which I'd had for a good portion of my life, but it actually had really, during the journeys, let go of most of that. So, yeah, I'd say I had no expectation of what I was going to do to earn a living or what I was going to do with people. You know, I felt like I'd like to be of service, but I had no idea what that would look like. And then this just sort of evolved in amazing ways. And I still believe it's almost like the more you surrender and let go of who you think you need to be, because I don't have too much of an attachment as an identity as a healer or a teacher or a, you know, ayahuasca person. You know, that, that just seems to be something that's evolved. And if I had to stop doing that, I'd play music. And if I had to stop playing music, I'd do something else. So it's like the identification part is kind of not in place the way it used to be. Well, you talk about being useful. And I'm curious about this notion of thinking about it maybe as how you can best serve our work together has been incredibly transformative for me, but not entirely in ways that I would have expected, I would say. And I think in part that's because I came into the work in such an achievement-oriented mindset, which necessarily meant that I thought that any change that happened was going to help me accomplish this or that goal that I was fixated on. But my actual experience has been that rather than gaining something, a lot of preconceived notions about who I was or what I should accomplish in the world have kind of fallen away. And in that process, I'm starting to see that how I can best serve is something quite different than I might have expected. Do you think that's a sort of useful question for people to ask or a useful way to kind of flip that around to ask, how can I best serve? Um, yes and no, because I see, especially with younger people, their identity is very caught up with serving, you know, like almost like getting a sense of self-worth by doing good deeds. And that might even be one of the questions I asked you is, who would you be if you couldn't do good deeds? You know, so absolutely. I mean, we all want to be useful and of service, but if you're identified with that, it's the same thing. You know, I'm a person who does this and does that. And I help these people and I, you know, contribute to the rainforest. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's almost like a lot of times what gets left out of that particular equation of being of service is, are you also serving yourself? Which sounds incredibly selfish, but self-love is one of the foundations of spiritual work. And if you don't have that, you're going to be constantly trying to serve others. And, and I'm not saying that's, that's a bad, obviously not a bad thing, but it, it's almost like who's doing it. And so sometimes for people who are really committed to serving, it, it's really valuable to step back and, and see if you're connected to yourself in a way that your identity or your ego isn't dependent on being someone who's of service. And again, I think there's kind of a magical, well, it's not even magical. There's, there's just a, a, a big flow of when you really do surrender to yourself 
and who you really are, that being of service or being useful shows up in everything you do. You know, like you walk into the grocery store, you might just make contact with someone that needed to connect with you in some way. Or, you know, it it doesn't look like being of service as a thing. It's more like you're, you're someone who's just open and ready to be present in whatever's needed in whatever space you're in. You have often said to me, it only takes one breath, kind of thinking about this idea of just coming back into the present, coming back into the present, coming back into the present. Could you talk about that phrase, it only takes one breath, and why it's sort of so important to you? You've said it to me many times. Well, I think, you know, we're all in the process of kind of shifting out of the identity or the ego into a a deeper connection, a more embodied connection, or anybody that's doing this kind of work. And, you know, you start to witness yourself and your patterns and how you know, we get so caught up in our thoughts and our stories that, you know, we're, we're disconnected in some way. So, you know, I can go through a day and be mostly connected and then something will happen or, you know, something will deeply annoy me and I'll be in my head spinning my wheels. It, it doesn't happen that often or as long because it really is, you really are a breath away from relaxing into your body. Shifting, it's almost like you're changing the the channel from, you know, channel crazy thoughts, uh, disempowering thoughts, crazy stories that haven't happened yet. Just taking a breath and just relaxing into a deeper connection where that that kind of becomes less relevant and you're more connected and you're more relaxed. And it it's not a breathing practice, you know. It's not like you're going to alter your consciousness with breathing. It, it's like you're becoming conscious that you are thinking these crazy thoughts and one breath kind of has you relax into the body a little bit more kind of start to shift out of your head the thoughts into a deeper connection and a deeper truth of you're not these thoughts and that's kind of back to the deeper connection of connecting to yourself in a very embodied way where you are relaxed you do have a place to rest and the thoughts will still arise and they may trigger you, but it, it's not about not having them or not losing that connection. It's how quickly you can take a breath and come back to yourself, back to that place of letting go, of being relaxed, even if you have to do it 50 times a day. I mean, that that's the practice is coming back to presence, coming back to a, a deeper truth of who you are rather than just the crazy thoughts that we all have. Right. Well, and that sort of comes back to the, that idea of like, if you are telling yourself those stories or if you are being particularly, you know, neurotic, that they're, that always kind of is closely associated with some sort of disembodiment. I remember, I mean, I was thinking the other day about some particular thing that I'm feeling quite neurotic about, which I won't talk about here. Um, but you know, I was kind of becoming conscious of those stories. And I thought to myself, well, let me just think about like, what is my actual experience in the 3D world of this thing that I think is such a massive problem. And if I just think about my actual physical experience of it, it's really not that big of a deal. If I leave out this whole massive psychic experience of all these stories that I'm telling myself about it, you know? Um, And 
you know, kind of flipping that frame really helped me calm down, you know, kind of, as you say, just becoming more aware of the stories and seeing them and, you know, just coming back into kind of physical 3D space and into the body. No, that's beautiful. And, and there's some great teachers out there that are kind of talking about this kind of inquiry, like Byron Katie, I came away from her work with the great question of who would I be without this thought? You know, if you strip away the thought of what could happen in the next, you know, little while or if the climate change is going to kill us all or what, whatever fears are there in this moment, you know, unless you're in imminent danger of something. There, there's really nothing that needs to separate you from that deep peace, that connection with yourself, except that thought that something's wrong or something could go wrong. So I've always liked that. Who would I be without this thought? So we've been talking a lot about transformation. I thought I might ask, what would you say has been your greatest transformation in life thus far, the biggest way that you've changed? Well, I think it's an ongoing, you know, you hear a lot of people have these radical awakening stories, you know, and all of a sudden they're not who they were before, you know, living in a much more expanded consciousness. And, you know, I, I see all of that happening, but I mean, I, I see it, you know, it's, it's the journey to ending suffering, to being able to live in a connection where most of the time I can feel peaceful and joyful regardless of the condition of my body or my circumstances. And that's definitely been an evolution that, you know, it hasn't been a like overnight radical thing, although definitely doors opened when I first started journeying. And, but it's, it's all the integration of the practices of just being present and looking at, and I think probably that's the core of my work because I am someone who created an incredible amount of suffering and angst and things in my life that didn't need to be there. And I think I've been able to distinguish, you know, a lot of what those things are, because it's kind of universal. There's not too many variations on the human theme. So I, I would say that kind of seeing myself as a whole and healed human and knowing that my intention is just to become more and more conscious and open and loving till till my last breath. Whereas before, I think my way of looking at things and probably a lot of the people who come to me are, how do we fix this identity? You know, even how do we become a better version of ourselves? Whereas in truth, you're kind of letting that self go, not trying to make it better. I mean, our identities, our egos are about as good as they get. Can you just accept it and start to identify with, something deeper, a deeper truth of who you are, where it's all an inside job and it's not based on externals. You know, to some degree, of course, but it's really that you you kind of find a, a balance and a harmony in yourself, regardless of what's happening in the external world or with your body or with your finances or with your relationships. And I, I'd say definitely that's been my biggest transformation probably from seeing someone who saw the cup half empty especially when my physical body started doing all the stuff it's doing to to someone who most of the time lives in a very full and overflowing cup that's beautiful 
you mentioned the phrase um, inside job um, when you were responding to that question. I feel like that has been a that phrase has been sort of plaguing me this year, just uh, really hitting home on the idea, uh, understanding that that all of, um, you know, the work of personal development or any type of spiritual work really is an inside job. Um, and I'm wondering if as just kind of a final question, you can speak to this idea. We kind of touched on it um, earlier before we sort of hit record on this conversation of thinking about just people's perspective on healing work and how often there is the idea that, you know, the person who's seen as the healer or the plant that is seen as the healer is going to do the healing for you. But, you know, in all of our conversations, including this one, you've really emphasized that that's, it's always an inside job and there's always kind of more work to be done, not more work to be done to be a whole person, but that the healing journey is really one that you kind of take on for yourself. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about that in terms of how people might approach any type of healing work that they're doing, be that going on a plant journey or doing Reiki or meditating or yoga or what have you. That's another great question. And, you know, you see it happening everywhere where people are giving their power away to teachers. You know, I never think of myself as healing other people. You know, when I hear someone say, I'm a healer, it kind of raises a few red flags because I think we're all in it together in the sense of, in some way, we all are mirrors for each other. We all are healing each other. Like Ramdas says, we're all walking each other home. And, you know, there's so much out there that is about divisiveness and, you know, being politically correct about what makes us separate and different, you know, even inside the ayahuasca community. And, but I, I see it more as, in a sense, you know, when, when you're healing yourself, you are healing other people. You're, you're healing all the people you're close to. Just like when I saw my friend change, I knew that was something I wanted that would be available to me. And I really see that with families, that I think when you heal your own imprint from childhood or, you know, cellular memory almost, you're, you're healing your entire lineage. And, you know, I, I think having people that call themselves healers, you know, it's all part of it. But I think the next step in our evolution is kind of a personal responsibility for each of us to come to wholeness in some way. I mean, I, I really agree with Carl Jung, the Carl Jung quote, which I love, is uh, the fate of the world depends on the spiritual growth of the individual. And Ramana Maharshi said, the greatest gift you can give the planet is your own awakened self. And, you know, th those are things no one else can do for you. I mean, you'll have your allies walking with you, but ultimately you have to do the diving. You have to do the work. You have to do the practices. You have to do the inquiry. And, you know, the plants are a beautiful ally. Teachers are a beautiful allies. But ultimately it, it is that commitment to yourself to inquire into the truth of who you are and what is healing. And, you know, for me, it, the physical body hasn't changed that much. 
you know, I, I think of myself as whole and healthy, that I've got things going on with the body. But the healing has been on such a profound level of knowing who I am, feeling healed, knowing it doesn't matter what I do, kind of trusting whatever's going to show up. And, you know, that that's all been kind of being my own laboratory, which I think we all need to be. And, and yeah, there's so much wonderful guidance and help and teachers and information. But it's still, in some way, you have to have that commitment to time and yourself and self-love, in a sense, to be able to really do the deep healing. I love Elle's idea that as you heal yourself, you are healing others. It's easy to think of yourself as an island contained by the limits of your physical body. But your influence extends far beyond that. We're all transmitting different ideas and energies and thought patterns out into the world around us every day. Little micro-transmissions that have either a positive or negative effect on those around us. When I got back from my second journey last year, there was an interesting halo effect that lasted for about a month. I had experienced a very big heart opening during the session, and when I came back to the city, I was walking around for weeks with a much more open energy than I had previously had. And the reason I know that's true is because people reacted to me in a completely different way. For instance, one day I got into the elevator toting my huge IKEA bags filled with laundry to go downstairs to my building's laundry room. And a neighbor of mine, who had never been friendly in any way, who had hardly ever spoken to me, suddenly came alive. He said hello and asked me if I needed any help carrying my laundry. It was a complete about-face to years of previous disengaged encounters with each other. Elsewhere, random people on the subway would strike up conversations with me, which, if you live in New York City, you will know is not a particularly normal occurrence. So while my body and my appearance looked the same, and as far as I knew, I was behaving the same as I had before the journey, this new, more open energy was rippling out into the world. And people were picking up on it. I was having new and different and friendlier interactions with perfect strangers. Whether we know it or not, we're all leaving a little wake behind us as we motor through the world. And it's rippling out into all the humans we interact with on a daily basis. So the question becomes, what are you leaving in your wake? In two weeks, I'll be back with a new episode in conversation with Mira Jacob, the author of my absolute favorite book of 2018, Good Talk. We'll be taking a deep dive into her creative process, talking about how being a woman of color has influenced her journey as an artist, and exploring what it's like to get published for the first time in your 40s. Another important note for those of you who feel like 2019 ran you ragged, my online course Reset will reopen for registration in exactly two weeks on December 17th. If you haven't heard about it yet, Reset is a cosmic tune-up for your workday. It's a four-week program that teaches you how to align your energy and attention with the natural rhythms of your body, how to set clear boundaries with technology and say no, and how to build inspiring creative work into your daily routine. 
If you'd like to learn more about Reset and sign up to get a sweet discount when it reopens, you can do so on the website at reset-course.com. Once again, that's reset-course.com to get details about my new online course, Reset. Much appreciation to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for creating our theme song, Calm Revelation. If this episode sparked some new ideas for you, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a handy link right down there in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and remember to take your time. Thank you.